Good morning. I said by 2018, I don't have to say that two times, right? Good morning. There we go. Thank you, Roxanne, for reading that. If you have your Bibles, keep them open to 1 Timothy chapter 6. That's where we're going to be today. Um, we are in John for like the first time in 20 months, so uh, there are other portions of the Bible, and we look forward to going over those. And, uh, and I want to thank Brandon and his team for singing. I know we got some important stuff to do here, but can we just give a shout out to Lawrence for the fastest battery change I've ever seen in my life? <clears throat> do you realize how under the gun he was? You all would have dropped the batteries three or four times a minute, right? That's why we pay him nothing. So thank you, Lawrence. Um, appreciate your quick hands there. Gosh, we've got to get this serious. So let's pray. Let's pray again, all right? Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you uh, just for everybody who's here, Lord, just that you in your sovereign goodness have brought them here for your own distinct reasons and purposes. And, and God, I guess what we pray today is that we just get out of the way. Lord, that you would, you would see that through, that your word would speak um, truth where it needs to be spoken, and that we would be humble receivers of it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's pretty rough being a Colts fan right now, isn't it? But I can remember not long ago that it wasn't that bad. January of 2007 was probably the peak time to be a Colts fan. Peyton Manning was at his, was in the middle of his prime. The, the, roster, the roster was low with talent. The greatest defensive player the world has ever seen and forgotten about, Bob Sanders, was playing. And so this was the year. I, could, I knew this was going to be the year uh, that they were going to go all the way. And by the way, spoiler alert, they did. Um, and so early on, the very first round of playoffs, I got invited to my brother's house to watch the game. And I remember going downstairs into his basement and turning and looking. And the only thing my brain thought was, what in the world am I looking at? Because for the first time in my life, I saw the beauty of high-definition television. It was, I mean, I almost wept. Uh, you could see the individual blades of grass in the field. You could see the chalk lines. You, there's details that I saw in a football game that, that I'd never seen before. And so you know what happened. As I sat there for three and a half hours watching the game, I left there and I thought one thing. What was it? I got to get me one of those, right? Now, I just got married not that long ago. I was pretty much broke. I couldn't afford it. But the whole week, I just kept thinking, man, I, I got to get me one of those, Right? And so I'd be, uh, how do I justify this? Well, you know, I mean, it's, it's, the Colts have never won the Super Bowl before. This might be a historical experience, right? So I need to, why would I want to watch that in standard definition when I know high definition's out there? And so the Saturday before the following round, I drove from Clodo, Indiana, 45 minutes to Avon, Indiana, and walked in Best Buy. That's the first mistake, right? Don't ever walk in Best Buy. And so I started just researching all the TVs, and then this really helpful salesperson came up and said, you know, really, if you want high definition, what you want is these DLP, these projection TVs, because they have the clearest picture. He didn't mention anything about them being monstrous and you not being able to get rid of them later, right? But he just said they have the clearest picture. And so he showed me one, and I said, oh, I don't, I don't have that money. You know what he said? No worries. Today only, we've got a deal. Zero money down. And no interest for the next 18 months. And I said, wait, you mean I can pay you nothing and walk out of here with this today? And he's like, yeah. And I'm like, sold. Let's do it. Okay. And so I pulled my car up to the front. There were 12 other cars waiting in line. All of them were loading up high-definition TVs. Right? This is, the Colts gave the, the technology business a boom that year. Okay. So I take it home. And I'm gonna, I mean, there's a couple things I'll be honest about. When I got home and I looked at that picture, I was super excited. Okay. I, I've never been that excited about a purchase before day of then a couple things happened. I got invited to different people's house to watch every single game of the run. I never watched a minute of the Colts playoff run through the Super Bowl on that TV. Okay. Not two weeks after the Super Bowl, 
Samsung comes out with something called LCD TVs, okay, which are high-definition TVs. They're about three feet narrower. They weigh about 150 pounds less. You can hang them on a wall, and they're cheaper. Okay? And so here I am for the next 18 months paying on a TV I don't even want anymore. Okay? And, I, and I didn't even get to use it for the thing. And so what, what happened? What happened? Well, I was an idiot. That's what happened. I was young, I was dumb, I got caught up when I saw the gloriousness of HD and, and something in my heart said I had to have it. And not only did that purchase not ever satisfy me, I was paying it off months later when there were already better options out there. And so the whole thing, as I look back, just feels like a gigantic waste. Did you ever feel like you're always wanting the next thing only when you get it, it doesn't satisfy you? Do you ever wish that you could break out of that cycle? Do you, you, ever, you ever spent way too much time focused on what you don't have instead of what you actually have been given? you ever wondered if true contentment and fulfillment is even possible in this life? And so this is a constant struggle for us because we are pounded all the time with messages telling us that we need this next new thing. At this time of year, this is heightened with Black Friday sales and Cyber Monday sales and all these things. It's all this push that you need the next few things. And so, assuredly, a couple of weeks ago on a Friday, Americans were punching each other over, over TV, right? But this, this isn't just America. The last time I was in Berlin, Germany, I was walking down one of the streets and I was like, why are all these people sleeping on the street? Is this like a, like a homeless section? Or, you know, there are all these tents. And I got to the end of the street, you know what was there? An Apple store. The next iPhone was being released the next day. And so they are camping out the day before, right? This marketing machine has immense power over us. In 2014, companies in America alone spent $137.8 billion on advertising. Now, I want you to, I want you to let, that, let that sink in. They didn't spend that on inventory. They didn't spend that on employee salaries. They didn't spend it on infrastructure or manufacturing. They got nothing of substance for that money. Yet they still spend $137.8 billion on it, which tells you what? It tells you it works. It's been said that the only reason most Americans don't own an elephant is because owning an elephant has never been endorsed by a celebrity. And it's never been offered to us with easy weekly payments. I'll do you one better. Have you ever seen this thing called a Chia Pet? Right, where they've got these little, form, these little forms, one, one's a dog, one's a pig. The creepiest one is the human head. Right, and you pour this water on it and this gross green growth comes out of it, who would ever need one of those? I'm, I'm asking any of you to explain that to me, yet every year around this time, you start seeing Chia Pet commercials, don't you? You know why? Because every year for 17 straight years, between Thanksgiving and Christmas, they sell more than 500,000 of those. The company that owns that won't disclose their profits because even they're embarrassed to admit it. Now, if you think about it, though, an advertising strategy, a goal of advertising is really pretty dark. Their goal is to make you unhappy. That's what they're trying to do. Those people waiting in line for the iPhone, they were happy with their phone a week before. But now that there's a new one out, they're, they're not happy anymore. And they're going to be happy with that new one until the next one comes out. Right? They're, they want you to be dissatisfied. They want you to be discontent. And they want you to believe in your dissatisfaction that their product, their experience, their item is your answer. That will finally make you feel full. And we are totally imprisoned to this. And most of us don't even realize it. We don't even know what freedom is because we don't know what prison means. Are you tired yet of being dissatisfied? Are you tired of this endless chase? What if there were actually a way to break free of this? 
Like what, if, what if contentment, and I mean true lasting contentment, were available to you today? In 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul is writing to his young protege, Timothy, and, and he starts uh, listing for him characteristics of false teachers. He's warning him, Timothy, these guys are out there, and they're going to want to weed their way into your church. They're going to weed their way into your ministry, and you can't let them, because these are those, Paul says, who do not follow sound instruction or godly teaching. And then he breaks them down for Timothy. Right, he breaks down what these guys are so, they, so he can stay on guard. And first he says they're, all, they're always conceited. Right, they're always about themselves. And then they have an unhealthy interest in controversy. They like to argue. They like to cause friction between people. But then at the end of verse 5, did you see how he describes them? He says they think that godliness is a means to financial gain. You know in the book of Proverbs it says there's nothing new under the sun? You know what Solomon's saying when he says that? Ecclesiastes says the same thing. He's saying that, that as long as human beings have been here in sinful, all our depravities have been laid bare. There's nothing new. This draw towards money, this draw towards materialism is nothing new. It's been around as long as people have. There's just something in us that believes falsely that more one day will be enough. Today, these people exist. This list that Paul describes exists. Right now, there are pastors this morning teaching this in their churches. I was sitting in the sanctuary with my family one day. We were on vacation. We visited this church. And the pastor was talking about his, his fancy car and his fancy suit. And he said, Jesus paid for them. So I'm going to wear them and I'm going to drive them. That was his message. Right? In America today, there, there are pastors asking churches to pay for private jets. There are pastors promising their congregation today that God wants to bless you. And what they mean by that is financially. He's going to make you rich. They are compelling people to give with really selfish motives. Right? He's saying you can't outgive God. So if you give him $10, he'll give you 100 So why not give? And the only way that I can make sense of this is that the only truth that, that could be possible is that they and no one in their churches have ever read the Bible. That's the only way it could happen. Because what does Paul say about them in verse 4? He says they are conceited, they're ignorant. The word he uses is they understand nothing. And by the way, it's the nicest thing he has to say about them in this chapter. Now I want you to hear, again, the warnings laid out for us. Look at verse 9 that Roxanne read for you. 1 Timothy 6 verse 9. He says, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. I want you to imagine this morning, right? I assume by the time this service ends, most of you will be hungry. It'll be lunchtime. I want you to imagine that you go to lunch today and, and in that hunger, with every bite that you ate, you never got full. In fact, the opposite happened. Every single bite you took of food actually made you more hungry. And so your two choices are to stay at your current level of hunger and discomfort or try to fill that, but each bite you take actually makes you more and more hungry. I've only met two people like that in my life, and both of them are my daughters. Okay, they're going to eat me out of house and home, right? But do you know, do you understand how frustrating eating would get? You're never satisfied. You're never full. In fact, with each bite, it only increases your appetite. You'd be in this endless trap. And what I've described to you is what so many of us do with wealth. U.S. News and World Report surveyed 1,000 Americans, and they wanted to discover for them, how would you define the American dream? 
know what the idea of the American dream is, right? That, that anyone in this country can start from anywhere. And by pulling up your bootstraps and working hard and being, and with your own ingenuity, you can raise yourself to a level of success. You can do it by your own hard work and being better than everyone else. That's the American dream. And so they asked people, based on their income level, what, what does the American dream look like for you? What would you need to be fully content and think that you had arrived? And so the first people they surveyed made about $25,000 a year. And so they asked them, what would you need? And so they went and they tabulated it. And you know what it came out to? They would need about $50,000 a year. And then they would be fully content and fully satisfied. The next group they went to made $100,000 a year. And so they asked them, what's the American dream look like to you? What, what, what would be you arriving? What would be your contentment? And so they listed those things from the added up the value. Guess what it would be? About $200,000 a year. And this pattern continued. And what they discovered is that your income is irrelevant. The consistent belief of Americans is that you need twice as much and then you'd be happy. This endless cycle, no one ever wins. Now, we, we do this with God's commands, don't we? We read warnings against pursuing wealth or against pursuing pleasure. And we're like, there's God trying to keep me from things again. He's always trying to ruin my fun. He's always trying to take good things away from me. No, you fool. He's trying to protect you. Listen to the list again. Those who want to get rich fall into a temptation and a trap. The temptation is that there will ever be contentment for you in this search. The temptation is that you'll ever arrive and you will not. God has told us this for thousands of years. This is fruitless. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 verse 10 says this. Whoever loves money never has enough. That's simple enough, isn't it? Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. That was not written by a poor guy, by the way. That was written by Solomon, the, the, the wealthiest man on the face of the earth. And he's telling you there's nothing in it. If you do anything today, reject the lie that more will ever be enough. More will never, ever, ever be enough. Those who want to get rich, Paul says, they, they have foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. At the root of some of the most horrible things that human beings do to one another is greed. There are people being oppressed right now. People being bought and sold into sex slavery. People being cheated, cheated and abused and neglected all at the altar of the almighty dollar. How many marriages have fallen apart at the, at the altar of this pursuit? How many children have been left behind? You know, in 15 years, I've been asked to do a lot of weddings. And there's something personal when you marry a couple and you want, to, you want to make sure they see it through. You want to make sure that they don't, this thing doesn't fall apart. Fifteen years, only two couples that I've married ended in a divorce. And it still haunts me. But one, I know why. A week after the wedding, they bought what they described as a fixer-upper. It looked like a nice house to me. And for the next 18 months, they worked Monday through Friday. Next 18 months, they gave every single Saturday and every single Sunday to working on this house, improving this house, making it their dream home. What was laid behind was the kingdom of God. What was laid beside was working on their marriage. What was laid beside was church. It was all to get this dream home done. 18 months in, their house was immaculate. 19 months in, they were divorced. They worked on the house and not the home. And then Paul gives the big finishing punch. The, this love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And he goes on to write this, the second half of verse 10, that people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. I want you this morning to recognize the battleground. 
today. Do you see the power in this? Colossians chapter 3 says this. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Sexual, listen to this list. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. That's what greed's thrown in with. All those, all those sins that we're shocked by, all those sins that we label as dirty or bad. Paul says greed is in that. And not only that, he comes right and says that greed is idolatry. When you're greedy, you, you replace God with money and stuff. You find your fulfillment in money and stuff. And that is ridiculous, which is why Jesus said in Matthew 6 that no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. And if that wasn't clear enough, he just went ahead and clarified it for us. You cannot serve both God and money. Listen, we are talking this morning specifically about greed. We're talking specifically about materialism. We're talking specifically about wealth and money. But please, I'm going to ask you now, do not think for a second and do not say when you leave here the sermon was about money. Because that would be for you to focus on the symptom and not the disease. Right? Because well, there's several ways we could do that. If we want to make it about money, I could show you pictures of starving children on the screen and say, enjoy your Chinese buffet for lunch, you gluttons. Right? I mean, I could do that. And then that guilt that you would have that com- would compulse you and might move you to ma- maybe I'll just donate something to a poor kid or do something, but it wouldn't be for the right reasons at all. It'd be just to make you feel better. And you can do the right thing for the wrong reasons, but you won't do it for very long. Now this passage in 1 Timothy 6, this sermon is about your heart. It's why Paul used such harsh language. It's why Jesus drew the line in the sand for you cannot serve two masters. Because when push comes to shove, you'll love one and hate the other. And there are a few things that have such a hold on us, that have such a draw and temptation to grab our hearts like this. I'm going to go ahead and wager that some of you are already upset. Some of you have already checked out on me. You got your guard up because your heart is owned by your stuff. And if you're already angry, then I'm going to lovingly tell you that's on you this morning. Because all of us need to recognize the battleground here. What's at stake is not whether or not you keep up with the Joneses. What's at stake is not whether or not you fall into debt. I'll tell you, debt is bad. About as far as I'll go with it. What's at stake is not whether or not you find financial freedom I have very little interest in that. What's at stake is not whether or not you help someone else. What's at stake is your heart and who it belongs to. And God knows this, that we are prone to give our hearts to things that don't matter. And one of our greatest temptations of this is wealth and material things. And God simply will not stop pursuing you. He will not stop chasing you. He will not stop coming after you until he and he alone has your heart and he is relentless and he will outlast you. And so the best thing for you and I to both do is to engage in the battle ourselves. Get on his side. Proverbs chapter 4, 23 tells us this. Above all else. That means pretty important, right? Above all else, guard your heart. For everything that you do flows from it. Look at how serious Paul tells Timothy to take this. First Timothy 6 and verse 11. He says, but you, man of God, flee from all this. And pursue all righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. He does he say, you man or woman of God, avoid this. Take a little precaution. You know, be careful of it. No, he says to flee it, which means we are to turn and run from it. We are to do everything we can to avoid our hearts getting trapped by these desires. So how do we do that? How do we engage in this fight? 
Well, it starts by reevaluating the things that we give value to. Right? In this series, we told you, leading up to it, we want in this series to ask you the question, what are you not doing for Christmas? What are things that everyone else is going to be doing and you're going to pull back and not do those this year? And what are you going to do instead? And in, this, in the next three Sundays, today and in two to follow, what we want you to do is that we want you to elevate things, three things that we believe are entirely underrated. Three things that we don't think anyone values enough. Three things that aren't given their due. And those three things are contentment, time, and gentleness. Right? We think they're worth far more than any of us give them credit. Right? Look, at, check, look at verse 6. Paul writes, Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world. We can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. Did you catch what he said there? What is the real gain? Right? The false teachers are saying godliness is a, is a means to financial gain. And Paul's like, no, no, no. The greatest gain is not financial. It's not material. The greatest gain is godliness with the key word of contentment. What if the only way to ever truly get enough is to desire less? See, it turns out that God's a lot wiser than we are. We just finished John, and I don't know if you remember about 12 or 13 years ago, we were in John chapter 3, uh, but in that, in that story, John the Baptist's disciples come to John, and you remember they were upset, right? They were, they were all angry, they were all offended because everyone who had been huddled around them, everyone, they had been the big show, now all the crowds were going to see Jesus, and they're in a comparison game. We were big, and now he's big. They were nothing, and now we're nothing, and we don't like it. You remember what John told them? John the Baptist in John chapter 3 said, a person can receive only what is given him from heaven. See, everybody in that circle was worked up. Everyone in that circle was playing the comparison game. They all felt cheated. They all felt slighted. They all felt overlooked. They were all unsatisfied. And John the Baptist was cool. He was perfectly content. And he recognized that his only role is to receive what God wants him to have and then be faithful to that. So there was no striving, there was no angst, there was no victim mentality. Let me ask you, don't you want that? Doesn't that actually sound like a better life? Doesn't that actually sound more appealing than anything you're going to see advertised on TV or Facebook or a billboard today? I mean, it's time that we start giving contentment. It's due. It's worth far more than anything you could buy. And this is something that Jesus wants to give to you. Philippians chapter 4 says this. Paul is writing, he says, I am not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Now, Paul makes two claims there, right? Number one, he says that he's learned to be content regardless of his circumstances, which means what? It means it's possible. And number two, here's how it's possible. He didn't do this on his own. Christ enabled him to do this. Sorry, athletes. Philippians 4.13 doesn't mean you're going to make your next jump shot. Right? FCA has misused this verse so badly. Okay? I, just, just, I'm, I'll tell you, I, I, I can own this. Right? I was in high school playing on the Cloverdale golf team, and, and in our schedule... Uh, we had to play a lot of teams repeatedly because there's just not that many schools around there. And so this was the third time that we had played in a meet that Clay City was in a meet. And being that they always, you always play, the ones play with ones, twos play with two, threes play with three. I, was, I played with this kid for the third time in about three weeks. And the first couple rounds, I really liked him. He just had a way about him. He was easy to compete against. He was one of, my, one of the favorite opponents of, of the year. And so this third round was at Forest Park in Brazil, and this guy started out awful. 
Right? I knew he was better than this because I'd seen the first couple rounds, but he was shanking, he was chunking, I mean, he was all over the place. And, and you watched his attitude just drop, 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 drop. And he was almost in tears after the third hole. He was just falling apart. I felt really bad for him, right? I know in, the, in competition you're supposed to want to step on his throat, but he'd already played so bad there's no way he's going to catch up, right? So I just began to feel bad for him, and, and, and I felt like the Lord impressed me. Make sure you try to find a way to encourage him. And so I noticed as he teeing off the fourth hole, he had one of those WWJD bracelets on. I'm like, ah, I got it. And so I tore a thing off my scorecard, and I wrote, what do you think I wrote? Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And I, he tees off, he gets another bad shot, he's, he's kind of moping his way back to the back, and I just kind of hand him that, and I said, hey man, you're, you're going to turn it around, he's with you. That's terrible application, right? You know what I should have said? I should hand it to him like, you know what Jesus says? You should be happy even though you're playing crappy golf right now. Right? That's, that's what I should have and then handed him that verse. That would have been right because there is amazing freedom. There's immense value. There's great gain in contentment. And it's time that we value it. Right? And so here's what we're going to do as a church. We're all going to practice this today. Are you excited about this? When you leave here, I'm assuming that you're going to get in a car of some sort. And when you do, the second you get in your car, those thoughts are going to come flooding in. Man, if I just had a nicer car. If I just had a, a newer car, if I just had one of, you know, those seat warmers, my bottom's kind of cold, right? If I just had, a, you know, satellite radio, or, or some of you, some of you college students, if I just had a muffler, right? You know, you have these things. He, not today, though. Do you hear me? Not today. Because when I want you, when you get in the car, I want you, and especially if there are people riding with you, just to creep them out, just say it out loud. God, thank you for my car. Thank you for all its quirks. Thank you for, for, for providing me with this means that hopefully will get me from here to where I'm going. And by the way, if you don't have any payments on that thing, thank him immensely for that. Then when you get home, when you cross the threshold of your dorm room or your apartment or your house, you, those thoughts are going to come in. Man, if I just had, you know what, if I just had a bigger house, if I just lived in a nicer neighborhood, if we just had a better kitchen, you know, some more counter space. If I had more square footage, or maybe you're an empty nester now, and you're like, man, I really need no, less square footage. If I just had a bigger yard or a smaller yard, if we, could just, if we could just redo these floors, these floors are disgusting, right? Not today. Not today. When you walk in your door today, I want you to say, God, thank you for this shelter you provided for me. Thank you that tonight I'm going to lay in bed, and later this week when winter comes back, I'm going to have heat. Thank you that when it rains tomorrow, I'm going to have a roof over my head protecting me from that. Thank you for what you've given to me. Right. Later today or tomorrow, I'm assuming you're going to go to your job or your school, right? And, and, and you're going to, those thoughts are going to come in on your way there. You're man, I, I wish I had a better job. I wish they'd value more and pay me more. I wish I had better perks. I wish I had a, a different location. Man, if I, I could just get some different responsibilities, this job would be better. Or you're at school, man, if I just had a different teacher, different professor, just more interesting classes, then, then, then I'd be content. Not, not today, not tomorrow. I want you to say, God, thank you for providing me with this. Thank you for the chance to, to actually fight against the curse that sin has unleashed in your creation and do excellent work for you today. Thank you for the opportunity to honor you and work unto you. Thank you for the opportunity to learn more about your creation, get skills that I can use to honor you the rest of my life. Tomorrow morning when you wake up and you look at your spouse, you're going to be tempted to say, if I just had a nice, no, let's not go there, right? <laughs> just thank God for him or her, okay? Will you just commit, will you just commit to a period of time long enough that it becomes habit of focusing on what you have 
and not on what you don't. And Paul's telling you, if you ask Jesus to help you with this, he'll help you. You can, you can do this through him. We need to value contentment more than we do. And we need to value things that are eternal more than we do. Because the other harsh reality of wealth and stuff is that you can't take any of it with you. Now we know this, but somehow we forget. Look at verse 7. Paul lays out something that's not profound at all, but we need to remember it. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. I can think of no better analogy for American consumerism life than the game of Monopoly. Now, you young people, Monopoly is something called a board game, and board games are what people played before they were cell phones, okay? And, and, and when you play Monopoly, the, the name of the game is simply to acquire, right? And if you've never won Monopoly, I'm going to give you a little trick here, and then you, you'll win it after this, right? Every single square you lay on, you buy it immediately, okay? Even if you have to go into debt, you get, and the name of the game is to get every property you can because eventually all your opponents are going to land on that, and they're all going to have to pay you money every single time. And assuming any of you have ever played the game long enough to end it, I don't think many have, but what happens at the end of the game is that every other player is broke and there's one there with everything. He owns the whole board, he has all the money, he's got everything that he could ever want. And you know what happens next? It all goes back in the box. Because it wasn't real. The game was there before they played it, the game will be there after they played it. All the houses, all the properties, all the get-out-of-jail-free cards, all that wonderful money, it all goes back in the box. And it turns out it was just a mirage the whole time. It's why Jesus says in Matthew 16, what good will it be for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their soul? Now there is a part of you, there's a part of your story that, that will carry on forever. Did you know that? And it has absolutely nothing to do with your stuff. There are things that last forever. Jesus says in Matthew 6, Do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and vermin do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. And then there's that word again. For where your treasure is, there what? There your heart will be also. Do you know why we're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that nothing Listen to that word, nothing you ever do for the Lord will be useless. And nothing you ever do for the kingdom of God will be in vain. It's because God is eternal and so his kingdom is eternal. And we aren't told, honestly, we aren't told a whole lot about heaven in the Bible other than you could wrap it up in this, don't miss it. Right, but one of the, there's two things that we know for certain. God will be there and other people will be there. And so if you want to know how to store up treasures in heaven, anything that you do for God on behalf of others... Anything that loves on people in the name of Jesus, any sharing of his hope with others, anything that gets more of Jesus in their life that is storing up a treasure in heaven and it is an eternal investment that will never fade. George Pruitt was a pastor in Texas and, and he got invited uh, to this wealthy oil tycoon's home. At the end of the dinner, the, the, this guy wanted to show off. And so he took Pastor Pruitt up to the highest point of his property and he said, you know what, Pastor, 25 years ago I had nothing. And I want you to look out this way, and everything that you can see is mine. He said, now I want you to turn around and look that way, and, and all the grain fields you see, guess what? They, they're all mine. And I want you to turn east, and every cattle that you see, it's all mine. And I want you to turn west, and that whole huge forest over there, it's all mine. And he sat and waited for the, wow, that's impressive. But you know what happened? Pastor Chute put his hand on the guy's shoulder, and he pointed up towards heaven. He said, that's impressive, but what do you have up there? And the guy said, well, I've never thought about that. 
So how do we do this? How do you value the eternal above the material? How do you stop chasing the immediate at the cost of the lasting? Well, you know how appetite works, don't you? All appetite grows as it's fed. And so we lessen the hold that material things have on us the more and more we ignore them. We lessen the hold that the material things have on us the more and more we pursue the eternal. At some point, we have to actually make the shift. At some point, we actually have to do the hard step of allocating resources. At some point, we have to decide that we've got a big enough home or big enough barn, and we've got to find contentment in what we already have. And then we redirect our resources to something that won't fade. And when we do, we deal a serious blow to the hold that our stuff has on us. And so I want to give you three really simple challenges this week. Okay, this is just scratching the surface kind of stuff. But, but this would be a way for you to engage in the battle yourself. Number one, give something away. Now, I want you to understand what I'm asking you to do here. This is not bypassing your garage sale and giving something that you don't use anymore and unloading your junk on somebody else. All right? Give something away this week that you actually still like. Give something away that you still use. Give something away that still has value to you and give it to someone who needs it more than you or could use it more than you. By the way, if you're in this congregation and you're the recipient of one of those things this week, accept it gratefully. That's the work of God in their life. Challenge number two, you need to start tithing. Yeah, I use the word tithing. We don't talk about that much around here. But tithing is a spiritual act of worship that began in the Old Testament where God commanded the Israelites to bring a tenth, one-tenth of everything they owned to the temple to be used for his service. That command carried on to the church in the New Testament where all followers of Christ are commanded to give regularly of their income to the kingdom of God, but with a really important distinction that we have to understand. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7 lays this distinction out for us. It says, each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. See, one of the things that happened in the Old Testament structure was to follow the law what became an act of just mere obedience. And so this, this process of tithing became this begrudging, joyless act done under compulsion, and it's not what God wants. He doesn't need your money. Did you know that? He doesn't need a dime of what you have. The earth is his and everything in it. But what he wants is your heart. And that's the point of tithing and giving. It's so important that you choose to do this on your own. It's so important that you want to. It's so important that you believe in what you're doing. It's so important that you decide this is an act of worship you're going to do. This is why we don't pass plates here. We don't want a single dollar given under pressure or compulsion. We want you to want to. Because every single dollar that you joyfully give back to God, and I say give back because it's rightfully his, is another dollar that will not own your heart. So if you're not currently worshiping in this way, if you don't currently tithe, and you're simply not trusting God to provide for you, and you're closing yourself off from more of what he has for you. So the challenge is you need to start. You need to start immediately. Everyone wants to know how much. There is no minimum suggestion in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians 9 gives you that, but I would say you've got to start with the 10. It's a good Old Testament principle. Because I'd rather live off of 90% of my income and strive for God to have 100% of my heart than to live on all my money and know I was keeping parts of my life and my heart from him. And by the way, if you already do this, when's the last time you ran that amount by him? 
When's the last time you asked them if maybe you should pick up a missionary to support or a child to sponsor? Maybe you should bump from 10 to 15 to 15 to 20. When's the last time you actually ran that by him? Pray and ask him for direction. Ask him what your financial worship would look like in 2018. And then third challenge, sacrifice one of your Christmas gifts this year for the sake of others. Some of you are bold enough to give yourself a gift at Christmas. Respect to you. I don't understand it, but respect to you. If that's you, bypass that and spend it on somebody else. Most of you get gifts from other people. Ask someone that you know is giving you a gift. Instead of giving me a gift this year, take the time and money that you're going to use on that and use it to bless someone else. And the gift I want this year is for you to tell me what you did with it. Let that be the gift. Now, I'm going to be honest, right? These are small deals. Do you understand? If they seem like a big deal to you, that shows how far you have to come. This falls incredibly short of the calling to deny self and take up a cross and follow Jesus. But these are steps designed to get you into the fight. They're first steps with the idea that you will wage war on the hold this has on your heart because every time you give to where it hurts a little, every time you invest in God's kingdom, every time you defer a blessing to another person, you are weakening the power that wealth and materialism can have on you and you are opening yourself up to greater levels of freedom in Jesus Christ. And you're reminding yourself of what the real true prize actually is. The most astounding verse in all of the Bible on this is in Hebrews chapter 13. It says this, it says, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because, that's a key word, because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So the first half of that verse is everything that we talked about today. Keep your life free from the love of money. Be content, right? But why? What's the reason why? Because you're richer than other people? Because you have enough stuff? Because you have more than enough? No. Because you have the greatest prize there ever was. Colossians chapter 1 says that Jesus, if you're in him, Jesus has rescued you from the kingdom of darkness. He's saved you from sure damnation. And he's brought you into the presence of God the Father, faultless and without spot. And now you are a beloved child of his and you belong to him forever. And here's what you get. You get him. And you get his spirit and you get his, his help and you get his provision and his support and his guidance forever. What more could you ever want than that? What more could you ever need? The greatest prize in the entire world, the greatest prize of this life is Jesus Christ. And when you realize that, you realize you're never going to need anything again. This dawned on C.S. Lewis when he said, he who has God and everything else has nothing more than he who has God only. That's why I get so angry at prosperity teachers, right? Because what they do is they cheapen the gospel to take what God is offering us and bring it down to the level of wealth and material things. No wonder Paul calls them conceited and ignorant. I mean, think about it. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He's the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. He is the one who spoke this place into existence. He shaped you and formed you in your mother's womb. He determined when and where you would live. Psalm 8 and Psalm 144 tell us that he should not waste a single thought on us. He is holy and perfect in every way. He is above us. He is beyond us. And yet he still decided to come and pursue us and reveal himself to us and die for us and defeat death on our behalf. So that the big prize is that he could indwell in us. That he could intercede for us. That he could guide us and forgive us and be in relationship with us forever. Forever I am his and he is mine. 
Do you understand? The writer of Hebrews says that is your biggest weapon in keeping your life free from the struggle. That's your biggest weapon against materialism and love of money is recognizing the true riches that you've been given in Jesus Christ. The author of Hebrews understands this powerful truth. More, more stuff, more money, more possessions, more things, more will never, ever be enough. But Jesus Christ is more than enough. And when you know that, it frees you up to invest even more in his kingdom. Five months before my first daughter Hattie was born, my grandpa passed away. And so around the time that Hattie was born, I remember wanting to do something on, uh, for my mom in his memory. Hattie was born October 8th. His birthday was October 20th. So I thought, I was thinking about it a lot as the birthday came up and Corinne and I prayed about it. And we realized one of the things that one of the, the, the ministries that my mom holds very dear is, is Compassion International where you sponsor a child. I thought, what, what a better gift to give my mom on her dad's birthday than to tell her we've sponsored a child. And so on October 20th, 2008, we selected Hadija Namali because it's very close to Hadija. She's in Uganda. And so from that time forward, every month, there's a portion of our income that goes to Uganda every single month. And in the time since, we've written letters and shared photos, and she's told us about her family. We've told her about our family. It's a really cool relationship until about three months ago, we get a letter from Adija, who told us that at the Compassion Center where she was going to school, that there was a worker there who shared the gospel with her and she gave her life to Jesus Christ. And then she was baptized at church that Sunday and she wanted us to pray for her because she was going to take it back to her home where none of her family are believers. And you know what I feel every single time I walk by that TV in the basement? This tinge of regret. This man, you fool, right? Do you know what I never ever feel when there's a letter that comes in the mail from Medija? tinge of regret not once there's not a dime we regret spending there's not a dime we regret sending over there right what if this year what if you gave yourself the gift of genuine contentment you were just satisfied where you were what if this year you invested in things that ultimately mattered what if what if this year your heart was owned more and more and more by Jesus and less and less and less by your stuff Man, get in the battle. I'm, I'm begging you to take this seriously. Reclaim your heart for Jesus because more will never be enough. Stop chasing that endless pipe dream and recognize that Jesus is more than enough. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word speaks to the very things that we often don't want to talk about. Your word cuts open our desires and our intentions and our motivations and just lays them bare for us to see. And Lord, this can be a really uncomfortable process. God, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make sure everyone here understands we are all prone to this. We've all fallen guilty of this temptation. We cannot live in this country bombarded by the messages we are and have overcome this on our own. And so we need you, Lord. Help us to be a church that recognizes you're more than enough. God, I first pray that if there's someone in here who's never realized that they've never received the true prize of Jesus Christ in their life and never given their life to him, that today would be the day they would do that. Right now, as they sit in their seats, they would believe in him, they would trust him, ask him to forgive them and lead them and help them to experience, Lord, what we know to be true. 
that you are the greatest reward. Father, for the rest of us, may we lay our hearts bare. May we lay our checkbooks bare. May we lay our possessions bare in front of you and ask you to have your way. Remove the holds that are there. Remove the darkness that is there. Remove the unhealthy desires that are there. And may we be a church that flows out of contentment for what we have in Jesus Christ and blesses other people and invests in eternal things. And we love you and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.